Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're just, uh, I don't know what to say, man. I'm, I, I can't say I'm bored because I got a lot of work. Well, it's summertime, right? You're, you're smoking ribs. I'm on the coast. Like, it's summertime. Yeah, it is. And uh, I'm looking, really looking forward to the virtual dev intersection you guys have planned. Yeah, yeah, that'll be coming up uh, the next few days, you know, counting time shifting here because we're publishing this is still in August. Right. Uh, yeah, we, I'm excited about it too. We've got a great team. You're doing your Blazor workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, It's been a lot of fun to try and, to get all these different pieces together, make the best show we can make. And uh, some killer keynotes. We've got uh, George Howell from CNN interviewing... Um, Scott Guthrie in that sort of between two ferns format, sort of a right, fireside right. chat style. Yeah. And, uh, and also Charles Malala, who, uh, who runs teams. So that's a, a, a separate keynote on the second day. It's probably not too late to uh, sign up, right? Where do people sign up? Well, that's the, isn't that the great part about virtual? You know, we're used to an in-person conference where, you know, you don't want to buy a flight the day before. Right. Uh, much less try and get a hotel room. But, yeah, you can register right up to the last moment. I prefer you register earlier. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, no question. You can still get involved. So, when this, if you listen, when this show comes out, we're still doing the thing over at virtual.devintersection.com. Virtual.devintersection.com. All right. Very cool. Well, uh, the Blazer uh, workshop is going to be fun. It's over two days, four hours a day. And uh, it just so turns out that my Better Know framework has a l- little something to do with Blazor. So, is that so? Roll the music. All right. Tell me the story. All right. So, you remember at NDC in 2017, I think it 2017. was. 2017. When, when Steve when Sanderson you- showed his Blazor prototype. And blew us all out of the water, out of the blue? Yeah. Yeah, well, there were there were a couple of guys from the ASP.NET team, uh, David Fowler and uh, Damian. Damian Edwards, and they were sitting in the audience, and they had no idea that Steve had done this. And I, I just remember David Fowler just like going, what the? Oh, my God, that's not real, right? You know, he's like <laughs> freaking out. Which so, happens a lot with the stuff that Sanderson does. Like he just has a knack for thinking so far out of the box that when he sh- and then of course you don't have to debate with him. He's like he's showing you the code that is running. Right. You just can't actually believe your eyes. Yeah. Well, I you know I've been doing this uh, YouTube show called Blazer Train, mm-hmm. and you can check it out at blazertrain.com. It's small, short topics, digestible format. Um, uh, and and I interviewed Steve Sanderson and David Fowler in uh, a, a show that I did called The History of Blazer. And so, uh, I, I got David Fowler to sort of explain that feeling that, uh, you know, happened when he saw that for the first time. So, right. it, it, it's a really good interview and it's a video. That moment when your world is disrupted. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's like, when did he do that? <laughs> <laughs> Was I sleeping? What happened? I I took a nap and you invented a new technology? Yeah, it's crazy. So, anyway, I have a a link on the show page, but if you want to go to 1702.pwop.me, you can get to that as well. Or just go to blazertrain.com and search for the history of Blazer. Awesome. So, who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, Grab a comment off of show 1361, which admittedly is a while ago. That's from October of 2016. It was the last time that Rob was on the show. Yeah. We were talking about growing 
.NET meetup groups. And normally I would not tap comments this old. And I also know we're talking about a different, completely different topic today too. Mm. But this seemed somehow super relevant in today's world because talking about meetup groups during a pandemic seems a little unfair. But Gary yeah. Ewan Park, regular listener, great guy, uh, asked uh, quite specifically of uh, Rob and there was also another uh, Blake Helms was also on that show. Mm-hmm. Rob and Blake. Hey, do you guys have any details about the process you follow for recording and publishing your user group meetups? This is something that I've always thought about doing, but if not an audio video guy, I put cycles into figuring out what is needed in terms of both hardware and software. and would love to see some sort of blog post where this is all brought together in a way that people could follow. Things that spring up in mind are how to record both the output of the presenter laptop as well as the presenter at the meetup. Mm. Mm. How to best record a separate audio track using a dedicated microphone and stitched together to form a complete video. What software works best on Windows and Mac to add some finishing touches. How to publish multiple formats for different places if that's required. Any help will be gratefully received. And uh, it looks like it was uh, Blake who actually did write that blog post. Uh, back again four years ago. Mm. But, you know, it's funny. I read that comment and I thought, today, I, I have an A10 Mini Pro now. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've all gotten into video because of the pandemic. Right. And I realized how trivial, it, like, that four years ago, that was a hard problem. It was You're a hard talking problem. about running software on the machine, you know, asking the presenter, hey, will you run Camtasia on your machine so we can capture that video and like all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Today, I would literally plug the A10 Mini Pro into that, stream it live and record it at the same time. Yeah. Like it's just, it's a normal thing to do today. And uh, I think, I think our, our .NET user groups are changed forever. Like even when we, when the vaccine has finally appeared and we've all gotten it, things are not going to be the same. Right. It's true. It's true. And, People are going to be more careful. Well, I don't even think it's that. I think it's so that we're going to question why to go. What do we get from it? But I've also think we've solved so many of the in-person problems with virtual. Like I, we've improved our virtual systems now that are you actually going to get a better experience in person than you would remote? Yeah, that's a good question. And as I have hinted at before, and I'm not ready to announce it yet, I am working on that whole social aspect of conferences to try to make that as good as it can possibly be and as close to the, to the real experience as it can possibly get. I was uh, keynoting the UNOCONF conference just recently, and they used a tool called Remo, R-E-M-O dot C-O, which was specifically about it literally show when you run Remo, it shows you like a set of tables in a room and pictures of people sitting at the tables. And if you click on any one of those, you're basically dropped into a Zoom chat kind of thing. Right. You yeah. know, five, six people around a room. Some of them were were company ones, like there was a Microsoft table and there was a Telerik table and so forth. But yep. it had yep. that effect and you could roam pretty easily. Yeah, I know that. I, I've seen Remo and uh, it gave me some ideas and I, I, liked, I liked that whole idea. Yeah awesome uh so gary thanks so much for your comment uh, somehow four years later because really relevant to the way we think these days and uh copy of music to code by is on its way to you and if you'd like a copy of music to code by write a comment on the website at dot or on facebook we publish every show there and if you comment there and i read it on the show we'll send you a copy of music to code by and definitely follow us on twitter he's at rich campbell i'm at carl franklin send us a tweet mind blown <laughs> Game over, man!
Well, somehow, all you know, three years later, David Fowler still has a job. Like, it wasn't the end of anything. It was just the opening of so many. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was mixing my uh, metaphors there. Yeah, little aliens. <laughs> hey, let's introduce Rob Schieffer. Rob has been learning and using .NET since 2002. He's worked for small and large companies in various roles, ranging from junior developer to architect to director of engineering. And he's also a Microsoft MVP, blogger, speaker, and co-founder of the Birmingham, that's Alabama, .NET meetup. He loves building great team culture, championing DevOps, delivering value to customers, and helping others learn. Welcome back, Rob. Thanks. Glad to be here. Been a bit too long there, friend. Four years. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah, you change jobs. You have to learn a whole new domain and stuff gets busy. But uh, we we completed some work and I thought I'd come back on the show and talk about it a little bit. Well, and I really appreciate this idea of, you know, AWS and .NET not being mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of a stigma that you find out in the community. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to the serverless aspect as well. Yeah. Uh, so that, that trifecta of AWS, .NET and serverless. Uh, it, it's happening. It's out there, but you just don't see it a lot or hear about a, a lot, a lot about it. So I figured it would be a good topic for the show. I um, got into AWS.net stuff uh, after the last NDC London. Um, they had a booth there, and I was really interested. So uh, you know, just after talking to them for a few minutes, I was like, "Really? I can just go." It's, they have this um, dashboard an AWS dashboard that you can install in Visual Studio and you get all sorts of project types and you get the ability to publish to AWS just right from Visual Studio like you, you're used to in Azure. It was it's pretty slick. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really surprising. I went to reInvent, which is their big conference, kind of similar to Build, uh, five or six years ago. And, and even then, they were uh, making a big push for how they were supporting Microsoft technologies, .NET, C Sharp, Windows and Windows Server. So. Uh, it, it was kind of uh, refreshing, uh, but uh, yeah, over, over the last two years, really, uh, I changed jobs and, and started working for a healthcare startup, and mm-hmm. um, we had the need to build a, a new API to integrate with larger healthcare systems, and um, obviously, we were a .NET shop, so we wanted to use .NET Core, and so we kind of started down the path of coming up with a new uh, serverless technology and architecture that we could use for that. And why would you choose AWS over Amazon or over Azure in that scenario? Well, so we really, we started the whole process by uh, comparing the two. Uh, we took four to six weeks with each uh, cloud provider uh, and um, engaged some of their architects and, and met with them and talked about what we were looking to build uh, and then built kind of a, a simple proof of concept uh, to kind of prove out which one uh, would work best for our scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that went really well. And the first thing I would say is if you're starting your cloud journey, definitely leverage the, the um, folks at Microsoft and AWS who are out there to support uh, customers uh, because they're more than willing to provide insights and designs and, and feedback uh, for your situation. Uh, we definitely leverage that. It was a great experience and a great process. And we, we really benefit from that. But, uh, you know, after two, two, two and a half months of, of trying the things out, um, you know, our, our goal was to build uh, a serverless uh, architecture, uh, meaning, you know, we were spinning up resources to execute our code kind of on the fly. Right. Uh, and, and both clouds have those capabilities. Uh, but the real question was, can we do can we use .NET Core with that? Because at the time, .NET Core uh, 2.1, I think, had just come out or was about to. Mm. And 
And, um, you know, we were wanting to leverage the newest version of .NET uh, because it had so many performance improvements. It was cross-platform, so many benefits there. Um, and so we, we did these demos and kind of built out the POCs and uh, both, both were capable. Uh, the, the big things that we found out of that process, though, was um, that, first of all, all, our developers had more experience in AWS just through prior experience. Um, and with, with other employers. And so from that point, uh, it kind of made sense. You know, we're familiar with the AWS cloud. Uh, the, the other big thing that was kind of surprising at the time was um, Azure Functions, which is their serverless offering, uh, still didn't have support for .NET Core 2.1 at the time. Yeah, uh, I think it was in private preview and they were expecting to, to go GA in a few months. But uh, just, you know, knowing we were trying to build this thing quickly, uh, we, we couldn't rely that it would be out and ready in time, not knowing. You know, if they might do another refactor or something like that on the Azure Functions side. So in the end, we we went with AWS uh, because they had support for .NET Core 2.1, I think, day one that it was released uh, through AWS Lambda. Why uh, was the particular version of Core so important? Like, I think in the serverless model, you're kind of abstracted from the runtime anyway, aren't you? Uh, you are. Uh, but but in this case, uh, they didn't have support, I don't think, for .NET Core 1.0 either. Uh, I think it, that was right in the time when uh, they were Azure Functions was going through a big refactor. Right. Where they basically rewrote the entire back end. And at the time, they I, I'm not sure if it was just limited uh, availability, but I'm not sure that you could run on Linux effectively. Hmm. Uh, and the, the performance differences between running on Windows and running on Linux was pretty substantial from what I remember Interesting. Yeah. at the time. That Linux was actually going to run it faster. And again, I'm interested that you cared about the operating system for serverless. Yeah, yeah, mm. it, it's it's interesting because you, you wouldn't think you would have to, but at the end of yeah. the day, it has to run on some operating system. And when it runs faster on one versus another, that, that's definitely a factor you have to take into it. But I, and I totally get that. If you say the bottom line was this chunk of code ran faster on Amazon Lambdas than it did on Azure Functions. Yeah. Right. Done. Right. Like, okay. Right. It's the same piece of code ran differently yeah. that, that under the hood, it was a different OS and a different version of .NET and so forth. Those all, I think, are effectively secondary point. Like, do you specify that you want to run .NET Core 2.1 and, you know, Ubuntu Linux when you set up a Lambda? You do, actually, because they're, they're, they don't want to load too much, right? So right. they're going to load the appropriate runtime uh, that you're targeting. Uh, so, you know, actually just uh, this week, uh, I've uh, upgraded a couple of our services from 2.1 to 3.1. Uh, and so there's a configuration setting in Lambda to say, hey, I'm, I'm targeting 3.1 versus 2.1 so that they're, they're very... Um, intelligent about how much they put in those containers because behind the scenes the functions are running in containers right. and they're just to spin those things up as fast as they possibly can right so looking for any opportunity to, to shave off time and, and size and speed so and those are containers that you're sharing with other containers and so on servers that you're sharing with other containers so so that's that's where where you're picking they're not actually creating a server just for you they're because yeah. it's serverless. You're they're they're picking the right server based on the configuration, and that's where yeah. And, and because it's functions as a service, you know, it, I'm abstracted away from that. Yeah. Uh, so it really doesn't matter to me. I just tell them what what I want to use two one or three one. Right. Uh, but behind the scenes, they have, have to do all of that work to get uh, the execution environment ready to actually run the code. Yeah. 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 And and, and interesting that and Linux and do you specify flavor of Linux or just Linux? 
so let's see. I, I believe uh, they have their own particular version of Linux uh, that Amazon has kind of put together specifically for uh, AWS uh, Lambda. Um, okay. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I think yeah. I think I just saw that they 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 fairly recently released that to where you can run that container locally if you're not sure how something would work. Interesting. Uh, yeah, they've made that container available, so now that you can do your own testing on it. Uh, well, and herein lies one of the issues I've always had with serverless, which is you are now bound to that cloud vendor. But if they're providing mm-hmm. us a method to take that same piece of code and run it in our own container on premises, if for no other reason for dev purposes, I love it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. My my basic assessment of because I haven't done a detailed assessment like you have a comparison one to one, but I've certainly used Azure a lot, you know. And mm-hmm. I, when I got into the stuff with AWS, the the first thing that I well, the thing that I noticed overall is that it, the AWS stuff is competitive in terms of performance, you know, mm-hmm. and and price. That's for sure. But Azure just makes it so dang easy to do certain things, and you forget how actually complex those things are and what's going on under the hood when you when you flip that switch. And then when you go to AWS to do the same thing, you're in for maybe two, three, or four levels of, of uh, service that you weren't maybe expecting to have to do setup-wise. So I'll give you a good example. Just um, creating, a, you know, generating an SSL certificate, purchasing one, and applying it to a domain in Azure, it literally takes five minutes. And yeah, you got to buy the cert, but they abstract all of it away from you, and you do your DNS validation and all that stuff, and boom, you're up and running in five, maybe ten minutes, right? In AWS, oh no, that, there isn't any such shortcut. So yeah, you have to you have to know a lot more about certificates and things under the hood in order to apply an HTTPS certificate, and it may take days for you to get yeah. that turned around. It's, it's it's really interesting the approaches that that each cloud took. And think back at kind of the beginning of of each uh, cloud provider's offerings. Uh, AWS from the start was all about giving you resources in the cloud, giving right. you a VM in the cloud. What, right. What, what, is you needed, right? Where Azure started out more as a platform as a service offering. So they were saying, hey, give me, we'll host your website. Right. You don't have to worry about the virtual. So uh, it's just, to me, it's another one of those cases where Microsoft was like 10 years ahead of the curve and they, they kind of saw that platform or functions as a service, more abstraction was going to be appealing to users. Uh, where AWS uh, went more toward, hey, this is just a, a, a cloud-based data center, and we'll give you the resources right. that you need. We're assuming that you know how to run a data center. Right. Now, here's the cloud version of it. Right. And, and honestly, I think that was why AWS had such great success in the beginning and why they kind of took off a little bit quicker than Azure did in the beginning, yeah. because that's what people were used to, right? Most of the people that were looking to build these things, they already had a data center, so that that thought process, that design of, hey, I just need resources in the cloud, it resonate, resonated better with them uh, versus the platform being kind of a new concept and a new idea. Uh, it just, it wasn't as clear. And but with, now, yeah, you know, with, we're coming com- com- full circle. Now, a- AWS is trying to make it uh, build more abstraction layers and make it easier for folks to use their, yes, uh, their tools and their services and yeah. kind of catch up to where Azure has already always been strong. So. 
Yeah, if I, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but I've certainly heard the story that like Lambdas was kind of created against Amazon's will, that it was sort of a rogue team inside of Amazon. It said, this is a really good idea and just sort of did it and then presented it fait accompli. And, and ultimately they adopted it, but it, that leadership didn't grasp that moving up to platform was going to make such a difference until they actually saw the thing in action. Yeah. That, that makes sense given their history. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think ever since Lambda really took off, I mean, even for uh, like one-off or ad hoc type situations where you just need a little bit of code to run, uh, you know, the approach that we've taken where we kind of built our whole architecture around serverless is a different approach compared to, hey, I'm an ops guy. I just need this thing to run yeah. once a week and I, just I, run this code for me. I, I've seen it also as the, you know, solution to this quote, quote unquote, move to microservices. You have this monolithic SOA app. And you, you're having performance problems and you're, and because it's all, it's sort of one assembly, it's not easy to take the thing apart. And so rather than necessarily peeling it apart, you just build a couple of functions for your performance problem pieces. They're automatically isolated and independently scalable. And then you just stop using that part of your, your monolith because you're using functions for it. Yep. It's like a strangler pattern where you find the, the problem child and you go solve it a different way and you rip it out. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Uh, the only punishment then becomes how much shared state have you got inside of that service, which was a mistake in the first place. Right. But doesn't mean, you know, you're, I'm always in the, in this trap of untangling this brownfield knot. And mm -hmm. it's like, okay, yeah, we know we'll pull those pieces out to scale them separately, but we got a whole lot of baggage along to make those things work. Sure. But, uh, yeah, so it, you know, it, it was, took a, a little while to kind of figure out which cloud we wanted to, to use. But once mm -hmm. we settled on AWS, really the next step was getting our, our DevOps process right. ready uh, to, to go serverless, to go microservices. Uh, and so before uh, I, I um, started with the startup, you know, they, they were using five or six different tools, one for source code, one for releases, one for CI, one for work item tracking, and none of them <laughs> integrated together. So step one there was to um, set up Azure DevOps and really bring everything under one uh, tool, uh, which gave us a, a lot of benefits around sharing uh, code relating code to work items and uh, giving us a, a solid and mature DevOps process. So you may have been deploying out to, to Amazon, but still using Azure for your dev process. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, that's another uh, way that AWS is supporting that type of uh, workflow. They, they provide all kinds of tools and SDKs, one of which is the uh, Azure DevOps uh, tasks that they provide. Uh, and so that allow you to do things like deploy infrastructure using their um, infrastructure as code model, uh, copying to S3 file storage, which is their file storage uh, service, uh, loading configuration parameters, even just running PowerShell scripts uh, that use the AWS modules. They they provide all those tasks through that uh, Azure DevOps extension. Wow, uh, that we leverage, which is that was really really nice. PowerShell for Amazon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I love it. Cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, from there, we using those tasks, we were able to, to build uh, uh, continuous integration builds so that every time we check in code, uh, it pulls that code and restores the packages and compiles it, runs our unit tests. Uh, it can even do static code analysis, and then it prepares all the build artifacts for release. Uh, so we're getting that continuous integration, that continuous feedback that uh, every check-in is, uh, you know, not breaking the system. Right. Uh, and then there we have the release pipelines that that take those artifacts 
um, and uh, pull those into the release pipeline. Uh, specifically for our architecture in AWS, we, in most cases, we uh, push those artifacts up to S3, uh, which is their file storage. We kick off uh, CloudFormation, which is their infrastructure as code service. Um, and then we deploy database changes and run integration smoke tests against that environment. Um, so that's that's worked out really, really well uh, in that uh, all of that is automated. At least we have multiple release environments, um, uh, dev, QA and prod, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so every time something is checked into the master branch, uh, it'll automatically kick off that CI build and automatically deploy to CI. And so we get the feedback of running those unit tests for the build and running the integration tests for the release to know that um, did our changes break any, anyone else's code. Yeah, and just to enable code changes to be able to roll through, be valid, valid, so forth. Like it's just interesting that when we're in a place now where you just you want that pipeline before anybody starts checking stuff in. Yep. Like because you, you, you need you know the sooner you can see the code running, the happier you are. Yeah, it, it makes such a difference. I was very happy to be able to publish a Blazor server app on AWS, but without HTTPS because I. Because the certs figure it out, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Certs are still too hard. They really are. Yeah. Well, not not for Azure users. Not as, for long, as long like as you, yeah, as long as you're willing to pay for the expensive certs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I managed to get uh, Let's Encrypt actually, running, and it was uh, a whole lot cheaper. The ones that I, I believe Azure uses GoDaddy, so um, they're not all that cheap but they're not expensive either i mean they're, yeah. they're what you would expect to pay and usually you're getting a wild card cert right because let's face it getting a single domain cert is kind of silly especially if you're going to use www or anything else you know so uh so it's you know it's a couple hundred bucks i think for a year yeah 300 maybe yeah it's uh it, it, but it is they've definitely turned it into a, a wizard you click it and off it goes yeah no, definitely nice to have. But uh, yeah, so the the with with all the DevOps pipeline in place, um, you know, we one of the other things we kind of strove for is to to have as much as we could automated from an infrastructure standpoint. Especially when you're going serverless, um, in general, it should be easier to spin those things up because the whole idea is that they're kind of there on demand, uh, and you just spin them up when you need them. Um, and I think we we've probably hit somewhere between ninety five and ninety nine percent of our um, uh, code is actually, or infrastructure has been coded uh, with CloudFormation. So that's basically just a, a JSON format. Uh, I think they support YAML too. Hey, Rob, hold that thought for just a second because we need to pause for a very important message. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all of the NDC conferences this year are going online. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. So go to ndcsydney.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Frankel, and that's Richard Campbell. And that's Rob Schieffer, and we're talking about .NET on AWS, uh, serverless in particular. And I'm curious as to, did you do an analysis of lambdas versus just 
managing your own containers and clusters? We, uh, we, we didn't do a POC on it, uh, but from a, a theoretical standpoint, we just kind of thought through the pros and cons of each. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no question that containers uh, can work. But, but at least in our situation, you know, we didn't have anything that uh, required containers. Uh, so if you've got a brownfield application and you're trying to move it to the cloud, do lift and shift, whatever, um, or if you have an application that requires COM components to be installed or, or, or something like that to where you've got to affect or change the operating system, mm. uh, you know, in those situations, you really you have to use containers because serverless just won't work. Uh, and so there was nothing like that that we identified that would require containers. Everything no databases was, or anything like that that needed to run in their own space. So the the databases, um, we started out with using uh, a a service uh, through AWS called RDS Relational Database Service, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that situation, they spun up uh, a managed VM uh, and they manage it for us, but it's there all the time. It's less of an on-demand type of service. That's cool. Uh, eventually, though, we did migrate to their uh, serverless database offering, which is uh, Aurora Serverless is what they call that. And they've got a couple of flavors. They can support MySQL, uh, Postgres. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's it. I, I know SQL Server is not one of those. So we started out with SQL Server in RDS, uh, and, and that worked for us, uh, but we really wanted it the, the database to be serverless like the rest of the, the architecture. Sure. Uh, so AWS had um, created uh, Aurora Serverless, which is their serverless uh, database offering, uh, but it didn't support SQL Server. It was just Postgres and MySQL. Mm. Uh, but we were able to migrate uh, our databases from SQL Server to Postgres because they, they weren't doing anything uh, super complex or anything SQL specific. It was really just CRUD operations. Yeah. Uh, so we were able to do that uh, fairly easily. And now we, we do use a, a serverless offering for the databases as well. I'm kind of surprised you were able to put... So you were actually pushing an instance of SQL Server up into RDS. So they, they manage... Uh, it's a managed uh, SQL service. Okay. They, they build the, the VM, they have all that, they manage SQL Server, and they just give you a connection string. Interesting. So, yeah. I, I'm just wrestling with the difference between RD, because RDS also will host Postgres. So, I'm trying to figure out the difference between why I would ever use Amazon RDS versus the Aurora offering. They seem awfully yeah. similar. They are. The, the The big difference, though, is it's it, it has the tenets of being serverless, right? Right. So, you It'll pause if no if no connections are being made to the database. It'll just shut down. Right. Uh, if you figure it that way. So uh, you know one of our primary use cases there is our dev environments. We primarily don't have anyone working in the middle of the night, uh, right. and so when no one's hitting CI or QA, those database resources just turn off and they pause in effect. Yeah. Um, there there's a cold start time that's uh, that you know it, it takes a little bit of time to spin back up once you start to use it, mm-hmm. but. You set up schedules to say, hey, you know, my primary working hours are between, you know, these two times and, and it uh, you can have it spin up ahead of time if you want to. But, Keep it warm. Uh, nice. Yep. Yeah. I, I got to imagine the Aurora instance then is much cheaper. Funny. So if if you're not running it all the time, it's absolutely cheaper. Right. If you run it all the time, it's more expensive. Uh, okay. That makes sense. Yep. So you, you've got to. So yeah, if you know you've got a 24 hour day database, leave it in RDS. Right. But if it's so you, you've got to now the other thing to remember, too, is uh, because it's another serverless offering, you get scaling with that, too. So you can scale. Right. Uh, I'm not going to say infinitely, but a lot. Right. 
Um, whereas with RDS, I think you have to change instance sizes at some point and that, that kind of thing, which is a little bit more involved. Uh, so it, you know, it depends. You've got to think ahead of, you know, what's your, uh, elasticity requirements and, you know, what are you going to need, uh, longer term and does it make sense? But that being said, you know, we, we went from RDS to Aurora. Uh, we could go back to, to RDS if we needed to, mm-hmm. as long as you're using, uh, plat, uh, you know, database, um, instant specific features, uh, you'll be pretty safe. Yeah. I got to think the big battle for you going from SQL server to Postgres was the store procedures. Uh, that's why we don't use them. Uh, <laughs> we absolutely have to. That is an but, answer. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, we, we primarily use entity framework and, uh, allow it to generate the queries right. and, and doesn't always do it the most optimal way. And so in some cases we do fall back to, uh, stored props, but in general, we've been able to use it, uh, pretty successfully. And, and there's all kinds of other, um, data access layer tools now that, sure. that are out there and available to you. Well, and you can write user-defined functions in Postgres, but it, you're not just going to take a stored procedure written in T-SQL and drop it into Postgres and be happy. You're going to have to think about it for a while. Right. Yep. Doable. That's cool. Yeah. I think most new uh, projects aren't using stored procedures these days. It's just just a hunch I have. You know, with all the ORM tools and, you know, entity framework and things, it just doesn't seem to be necessary anymore. Yeah, it's almost to me. It seems like you know, peop, that's where people started, mm-hmm. right? Past and, and these days, it's hey, we're going to start with a data access layer that's just querying the tables, and then if we find the the scenario needs, uh, you know, more control, then we'll we'll fall back to store procedures where we really need to. Is that typically for performance pro- reasons or or security reasons? Uh, mostly for performance because right. EF sometimes can't figure out the best query. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it. Sometimes it's hard, right? There's no two ways about it. Yeah. But it's sort of a sign of a good ORM and EF being one of them that you can insert a store procedure in there and fix it. Yep. But uh, yeah, so with that, you know, having uh, serverless databases, that that brings most of our infrastructure uh, into the automated realm where, you know, we can spin up anything that we need uh, through the release pipeline. Uh, the, the, there's a few things like DNS set up, VPN set up, cross account networking, there's some things like that that you kind of have to set up at the account level. Uh, but we've done that like twice over the last two years. So the, the value of automating that uh, versus the complexity uh, just didn't make sense. But for, you know, 95% of what we need, it, it, it just works. Uh, and so what's cool is we can create a new branch in Git and uh, check that in. And we can create a whole environment for that branch specifically uh, with a single click in Azure DevOps, which is really, really Rob, what uh, IDE were your developers using? Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code? So we we primarily use Visual Studio. Uh, We do use Visual Studio Code for uh, certain types of development. We do a little bit of Python with uh, database ETL work. Um, But primarily for our ASP.NET Core applications, it's all Visual Studio. So did you use the AWS dashboard, the kind of the plugin tools that they uh, have for Visual Studio? We did. They've they've got got some really, really nice tools. So if you're familiar with the Azure uh, extensions to Visual Studio, AWS has something very similar uh, called the AWS Toolkit. You can see all of your AWS resources right there in Visual Studio in kind of a hierarchical view. Um, You just have to configure and log into your account. Uh, They also provide project templates uh, so that you can say, hey, I want to build an ASP.NET site that's going to deploy to Lambda or wherever else. 
and you can do create new project and, and create something that's going to work with AWS right out of the box. Uh, they also in, include some code editors um, uh, and then other platform integrations and things. Um, so that's the AWS toolkit. Uh, because we're doing .NET, we also leverage their SDKs uh, quite a bit. And they have different SDKs for different uh, services, but uh, we've used it for queuing and the Lambda functions themselves for S3 file storage. Uh, state machines, logging, tracing, sending emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SDK is pretty uh, comprehensive. So that's been nice to use. And then we mentioned the PowerShell tools uh, earlier. You can run those same PowerShell tools locally uh, and manage your AWS uh, resources from your local machine as well. So lots of great tools there. They even have um, additional extensions for the .NET CLI. Uh, so the .NET command, uh, it, they, they have some extensions for that. Uh, and then if you use the Rider IDE, they've got a AWS toolkit for Rider as well. So that nice. quite quite a few options there. Well, and, and appreciate like they don't have their own dev stack here, so they're making sure they support as many of them as they can. It's all traffic for AWS in the end. Absolutely. So what was the hard part, Rob? So you know, it's uh, building a microservice framework is is new to to many developers, um, and so just getting in that mindset that hey, you can't really remote into the box anymore. Right. Uh, it, something you got to kind of get used to. Uh, and so logging and tracing uh, is a must have. Uh, you, you've got to have a, a solid way to pull in uh, the the logs and, and the traces across distributed executions and, and be able to see them in the same place. So AWS provides tool services for that. Uh, CloudWatch is their logging um, and metrics uh, t- uh, service. Uh, so we leverage that. And then they have X-Ray, which is uh, distributed tracing. Uh, and so with those two, we're, we're able to uh, get a view into how is our code executing, uh, when are exceptions thrown and tracking metrics and, and those kinds of things. So that's pivotal. Uh, but it's, it's just a, a something to, you have to think about and uh, get used to. Um, the other thing is cold starts on, on the Lambda themselves. So we talked about the containers kind of behind the scenes that AWS is spinning up to execute uh, the functions. Um, it, it takes a little bit of time for those to spin up. Uh, we've seen anywhere from 10 to 40 seconds uh, wow. for uh, .NET right. containers or, or functions. Um, and so you, you've, you've got to work around that. And so, you know, th- that's not really all that uncommon, even amongst container development or uh, other functions as a service offerings. Uh, er- everyone uh, seems to be fairly familiar with the cold start versus warm start uh, scenarios. Uh, and so you've just got to find ways to, to, make, to make it work. In our situation, most of what we have are uh, web API uh, services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with that, you know, we're, we either use OData or uh, a REST API via Swagger uh, to call into those APIs. So when each microservice needs to call another, uh, we're, we're leveraging those interfaces. And uh, you know, when, when you have a microservice architecture, you really have to rely on um, resilience uh, t- to make sure that uh, those systems are, are up and running and, and having uh, solid fault uh, handling. What's the duration for going cold and can you adjust that? You can't adjust that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a blog post on this a year and a half maybe ago, uh, specifically around Lambda with some of my findings just that I've kind of learned along the way. But it seems like for the first uh, Lambda that spins up, if there's only one, 
it'll stay around for about 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. After that, anything past the first one, it's more like five minutes. Um, and so, you know, to keep uh, multiple lambdas warm, uh, you've got to be hitting the service with multiple re- concurrent requests every five minutes, effectively. Uh, and so in that blog post, I talk about how I had, I wrote some code for, uh, ensuring that you have n number of warm lambdas running at any time. But the only way to really guarantee that was to, uh, make blocking calls and multiple concurrent blocking calls that would ensure that it's spinning up uh, enough lambdas. Uh, and that kind of worked. It wasn't great because it, while that warming operation was running, everything else was blocked. Not good. No. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it, it worked. And, and if you have, and we use poly for, uh, fault handling. Poly is always yeah. good. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so if, if you're retrying, you know, it really, we didn't see any issues with that. But in the end, that was just a lot of, of a headache. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it just wasn't a great solution. Uh, and so o- over the last probably year, we've kind of been uh, evolving that strategy and, and we've more come into uh, really using poly more to, to set timeouts appropriately and retries um, uh, appropriately so that if, if you get into a situation where you have multiple concurrent calls, but not enough lambdas uh, to execute all of those calls, uh, it, it will then start to spin up more Lambda. So if you have a, a bunch of load all at once uh, where there wasn't any before, now you're you're having to uh, spin up a bunch of instances. Isn't that supposed to be automated? Isn't that the whole point of serverless is it'll automatically light instances for you? Oh, yeah, it is. It's doing that. But what we're trying to do is uh, prevent the user from being affected by that or, or cold, the system with cold service. starts. Yeah. So what, what we do is we set the timeouts to roughly the average time that it should take uh, for the service to return, which we, we shoot for that to be very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we time out as, as soon as we think we can and retry again. And the, in that model, uh, the likelihood that the first Lambda that was busy the first time you called it, when you call the second time after for the first retry, it's, it's unlikely that it's busy. It's still busy. So instead of waiting for the second lambda to warm up, it just it times out and then it retries and it gets the first lambda executor. Um, and then, it, but it's already warming up that second one, uh, expecting more load to come. Right. So it, it's expanding. It's 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 lighting up more containers to handle the load, uh, and we've prevented or at least minimized as much as we can the effect of the cold starts on the clients of the service calls. Although in theory, if a given Lambda is already running and you need another instance, it's it's a warm start, not a cold start, right? No, so the cold start is for each container that, that starts up. So if okay. one is running, that one's warm. Yeah. But if that one's busy and there's more calls coming it's in. Still it's still a cold start each time. New. Yeah. Interesting. So, but with that being said, you know, e- even just... The advancements of the cloud providers and uh, Microsoft with the .NET team, uh, those those cold starts are becoming less and less of an issue because uh, .NET 3.1, I think I've seen numbers around 40 to 50% faster. Uh, so that all helps. Yep. Uh, on AWS side, they have Lambda layers now, and they're, they're making their container spin up more intelligent, um, and they're making improvements on their side. So 
over time, I, I really expect all these types of issues just to kind of fade away and not be problems anymore because... Yeah, nobody would care about a cold start if it was sub-second. Exactly. Right? So, the yeah. real question is, what's taking so long and, and what can we do about it? What we really want is a hot smoking leg of Lambda. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a long way to go. Okay. <laughs> but I do appreciate the idea that, you know, here are the weaknesses. If you were controlling the container infrastructure yourself and responsible for all that, you could be maintaining empty, warm instances at any time. Serverless, you don't have as much control over this. Yep. Yeah. And so, you, again, it goes into planning. You, you have to make sure that um, for your use cases, uh, it, it makes sense. Again, if uh, you know you know you're going to have steady, consistent load all the time, functions may not be the best option for you. Sure. But for us, uh, you know, the bulk of our load is during the work hours. So uh, we can spin up lambdas throughout the workday and then at night uh, it just waits. Let them all wind down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, this sounds very much like your RDS Aurora scenario too, which is if you do have 24 hour utilization, then you, it makes sense to pay for the 24 hour running service. Yep. And, th and then I think you fall back to a container uh, type of situation. I think mm -hmm. that's what makes the most either that or, or platform as a service offering. Yeah. AWS does have something similar to Azure websites or apps, web apps uh, called uh, Beanstalk where you can yeah. just ask them to host your ASP.NET uh, web application. It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about these names, but okay. And the Elastic Beanstalk is pretty cool. The Elastic Beanstalk. Uh, the other thing I'll mention, too, as far as like Lambda configuration, um, you know, it you can tell it how much CPU uh, and RAM you want. Um so they, they only use one of those. So that you, you tell it how much RAM your uh, function needs. And then the CPU scales up, uh, I think, linearly with that. Uh, and, and another uh, in really interesting, uh, very surprising blog post that I wrote uh, around this was we, you know, we started out using the, the smallest amount of RAM. I think it was like 128 megabytes or something like that. Um, and, you know, we were, it was, everything was working. It was kind of slow. And so I started to see some other uh, documentation that said, hey, you should probably try to run it with more RAM just to see what happens. And it ran significantly faster, even offsetting the cost increase of running with more RAM. Interesting. So because your iterations were shorter, so your billing time was less. The That's additional right. price of the RAM ended up costing you less than the additional runtime of using less RAM. Exactly. Like Funny. Yeah. That's a great balancing act. We default to uh, one gig of RAM at this point. Uh, we found that seems to be the sweet spot for the types of work that we're performing. But depending on what you're doing, you might want to play with that to, to see, um, you know, how much you really need. And then the other thing is uh, you can limit how many concurrent instances Lambda will spin up. Uh, and so by default, it's unlimited, I think. Right. Uh, but, you know, playing around with that, um, you know, especially if you have retry logic in place, uh, you may only want to limit it to five. And once you're up to five, then uh, you're okay with letting it retry once or twice. Uh, now, obviously, you've got to monitor your um, your load and, and see how much um, uh, how many calls are coming in at a given time. But why why would you want to set a limit, Rob? Well, so because if you don't, you're going to pay for those cold starts. Right. Uh, and so at some point, it just doesn't make sense. The other thing is, you can only have a thousand, I think, concurrent uh, Lambda instances. Mm. So, across, uh, and I think that's across the account level. They may have changed that, uh, but I know uh, at one point we started to get hit uh, that limit. 
But a thousand of a given type or all? Uh, I believe it's all uh, function uh, lambda uh, concurrent lambda instances. That seems really low. I know it, it did to me as well. And, and you know, a lot of times with these quote limits that AWS sets, you just call them and say, "Hey, I need you to increase it," and they'll increase it. Like that seems like experimentally low. Yeah. Like, oh, this is only a test tool. Yeah, I, I you know, honestly, I'm not sure how many people are using it to the extent that we are. Yeah. Where your entire architecture is serverless, you know. Well, uh, you know, it's sort of the difference between a production app. Like I've seen lots of functions built on the IT side for workflow things where there's probably only ever one or two instances ever running ever. Exactly. As opposed yeah. to production where the number of customers directly affects the number of functions. Although I, I get what you're doing when you're saying, hey, I'm sending this to five because any given request of it is a millisecond, you know, it's 20 milliseconds is less than a second. And so right. I can churn, you know, a couple of retries. You're going to get one of the five. Exactly. But uh, yeah. so it's all, all numbers and configuration you need to play with and, and see uh, what, what makes the most sense. But again, yeah. using CloudWatch metrics, you can see, you know, how many how many uh, instances are running over time, how many are getting throttled because of the concur- concurrency limit, uh, your average um, uh, runtime for, for the Lambda itself. So right. you just got to all that into account and, and adjust it as you go. Well, I totally get why you got into Poly too, because it sounds like c- coherent retrying is vital. Absolutely. Yeah. Like just you expect start. to retry. It's a thing. Yep. Well, at least you know what your policy is, right? Just wait. Yeah. <laughs> wait and retry. What, what was really funny though, uh, we didn't, we started out with all REST services and then we started doing more OData services along, hmm. along the way. Uh, and we ultimately, uh, I think through some troubleshooting, we found that we were using uh, an auto rest client, uh, which is a framework for generating clients off of your Swagger uh, documentation. Um, and it was automatically doing retries and we didn't even know it. So we were getting some benefit out of that before we implemented Poly. Hmm. Uh, but once we started doing the OData, we were like, hey, the rest side is doing great. And the OData is uh, failing. Why is that? And we found that AutoRest was doing retries just automatically. The client right. that it generated had some default retry logic, but ultimately we turned that off and we're using Poly across both OData and the AutoRest clients. Awesome. So, yeah, intentional retry architecture rather than sort of incumbent retry architecture. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, you and you would imagine with Poly, you know, everything that it does, it's far more advanced than whatever. Yeah. Re- Logic the auto uh, rest client has. So. Yeah. Well, when I used to do, and I don't really do this talk anymore, but I used to do talk on Poly. And um, I, I start out by saying Poly is like a, a lot of logic wrapped around a try catch. That's really all it is. I mean, if you look at the source code, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. It's doing all that goo for you based on a policy, not based on, you know, what happened. Well, and just some cleverness about. Don't hammer retries over and over and over again. Try once, wait a little while, try again, wait longer. Right. You know, and at some point you need to circuit break and give up. Like it's all obvious stuff, but having it written in a piece of code you know is flipping reliable. Yeah. And is a set of policies so that you can adjust them everywhere when you need to. Like I don't want to need I don't want to maintain that code and I don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. So, Rob, uh, point us to some resources here. Where can we, who should we be watching in this space? Yeah, so there's a lot of great resources out there. You know, I mentioned my blog, .netcatch.com. I've been blogging about a lot of this stuff. You can check that out. I'm also on Twitter at Chief 
the number seven, Chief Seven. Um, at AWS, Norm Johansson is one of the lead .NET developers. Uh, and he's on Twitter as well. Uh, his handle socket norm. Uh, but he's always uh, tweeting about the latest stuff that they're doing and new releases. And, and he's a great resource. Um, there's a Slack group that you definitely want to get uh, on for AWS development. It's got a .NET channel, uh, which is really helpful uh, with, with lots of great people like uh, Steve Gordon and Steve uh, Bjorg. Uh, they're also on Twitter and, and great resources. Um, there is a website that's dedicated to .NET uh, as well development on AWS called the AWS.NET Development Center. Uh, and I'll, I'll shoot that link over and we can put it in the show notes if you want. Uh, yeah, I've been grabbing links nonstop as you've been talking here, Rob. Nice. Well, there's okay. a ton of good stuff here, but definitely. Uh, good. Have yeah. to add some more. Well, Rob, thanks very much. It's been very enlightening talking to you. And don't be a stranger. Come on back. Yes, sir. It's All been right. my pleasure. Thank you, guys. You bet. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.